90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Doing pretty good. How about yourself? Oh, I can't complain. It's been uh, a busy and eventful week. Yes, yes, I agree. I'm in the midst of midterms right now, so it is not fun, but that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's 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 less fun for the students than it is for me, I think. So <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, yeah. So I'll try to remember that. <laughs> right. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, but it was a classic Oklahoma week last week too, because we had soccer practice on Monday and it was probably well no, it definitely was like a wind chill of thirty eight. And then by Thursday it was eighty five. <laughs> Yeah, we've had a couple of days of 70s and snow this afternoon. Yeah, so. see? Exactly. Yep. Spring. <laughs> but, you know, I actually had a, a pretty fun opportunity earlier this week for my wife's birthday. We went down and toured the Celestial Seasonings Tea Factory. Oh, interesting. Because all of the Celestial Seasonings Tea, I don't remember how many million cups uh, a day or something like that they, they churn out of tea bags or how many million tea bags. Uh, it was really interesting. It all comes from Boulder, Colorado, and it's all relatively old school, but highly automated. Ah, I knew it was from Boulder. Um, how big is the, is the factory? Uh, surprisingly small. There are three production lines and each of the production lines would probably fit on a basketball court. Wow. For all that tea? For all that tea. Yeah. That is impressive. <laughs> That's yeah, impressive. it was it was very impressive. It was a very interesting tour. We opened up a door and went into where they store all of the like, peppermint, spearmint, and everything. Oh, and my gosh. it tried to suck your eyes out of your head. <laughs> Man, I bet they have to wear, like, PPE with those kinds of concentrations, right? Well, so they keep it in, a, in separate rooms, like the tea's in a separate room, peppermint's in a separate room, and then all the other stuff that's not too aromatic uh, is just out on warehouse shelves. But the other stuff is sealed behind doors. No kidding. Yeah, that doesn't yeah. surprise me. I bet that's overwhelming. Yeah, so that was uh, that was interesting. But the other kind of highlight was I launched a product. Yay. And you get well, to do and... shameless plugs, plugs here because it's your podcast. <laughs> yeah, so I, I will put a link in the show notes, but you should definitely go check it out. There's a nice little 60-second demo video of exactly what uh, what you use it for, but it's a tool to orient uh, seismometers or other instruments that we commonly put down post holes that we dig uh, with a laser. And you would think, why do you need that? But when you have to do more than one of those things, this is an outrageously handy tool to have. <laughs> yeah, because seismometers have big magnets in them, so you can't get your compass close to it. Uh, so the way that we do it now is either you put a broomstick on top of the hole and kind of by eye line it up and then measure that, which is not that accurate. Uh, or you use a gyro compass, which is anywhere between 40 and a hundred K depending on how good a one you get. Right. Yeah, exactly. And I'm guessing that yours is not 40 K. <laughs> uh, no, <laughs> I mean, you wouldn't no, mind it, if you earned that, but I understand <laughs> for, for a few hundred dollars, uh, Without the Brunton, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you can buy this thing, and I think it's going to be a really handy tool. So That's... go check the video out, even if you don't do this for a living. 
and let me know what you think. I already got one listener suggestion for a name. So. Oh, excellent. Oh, I can't wait. We should totally <laughs> send out a prize for that. Yeah. <laughs> excellent. Um. Well, you know, we, we had a big boom. Speaking of seismometers, that was not earthquake related. Yeah, surprisingly, uh, I saw on the news that there was a uh, a large explosion heard in Oklahoma City from a detonating bolide. Yes, and I am so angry, <laughs> so angry that I did not hear it, but my husband did. And so it happened in the afternoon, and it was this huge boom, and I think we're all just accustomed to, you know, earthquakes and sonic booms. We've got Tinker Air Force Base. It's a really big Air Force Base here in Oklahoma City. But yeah, a lot of people caught it on camera. Yeah, and so you can do all kinds of fun stuff with that, with the timing and the locations. And <laughs> Yes, right, uh, exactly. But that's really cool, and that made me think of when we were talking about the mass extinctions. Uh, we mentioned the Tunguska event, mm-hmm. and I thought we should talk about that. Uh, that sounds great. I actually don't know a super amount about this and so i'm guessing probably a lot of other people don't either um but as this suggests by the name <laughs> this is a meteorite event that occurred in northern russia in fact it was in siberia well it might be a meteorite event it was come on now. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get there <laughs> I don't want to listen to the rest of your, um, yeah, it's definitely one. It's out there. <laughs> but this was a while ago. This was before anyone would have caught it on camera, right? So this happened in the morning of June 30th, 1908. And just like the one in Oklahoma, it was the big boom that got everyone's attention. And surprisingly, even though it was in 1908, we know it was at 7.17 a.m. Uh, I know. Yeah, I thought that was really great. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure that's plus or minus a little bit. There's not exactly a uh, atomic <laughs> clock at that point. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Um, and when you say, you know, it got everyone's attention, I mean, it's in eastern Siberia, so it wasn't a lot of people's attention either, I'm sure. Yeah, and the the most telling sign of this event is that there is a big boom and then 2,000 square kilometers or about 770 square miles of forest were all of a sudden flat. Right. Yeah. Uh, I, I was thinking about this because I worked on downbursts when I worked at the Severe Storms Laboratory. And so that's what I always think about. Um, you don't think about how, you know, the shockwaves associated with this impacts do things. You think about the impact and then the aftermath. But that's a big deal. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, not only was a lot of it knocked down, so these hundreds of square miles of trees or thousands of square kilometers of trees but they were also burning so uh, yeah yeah that's there's a, that. that that's part of that aftermath business uh it doesn't happen in downburst so much either and there no. are photos of these uh trees too right i mean this is huge a huge area of downed trees well and one thing most people don't realize that we'll get to in a second is those photos were not taken right after the event right Yes, exactly. Yeah. So this event, they they say that we don't know of any human casualties. Yeah. I have some problem with that statement. Is I'm not sure how we would know there were human casualties in 1908 in remote eastern Siberia. Yes. Yeah. 
Exactly. I, there, there has to have been somebody in the path of this. And, well, most definitely things died, though, that's for sure. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> everything in that radius, the pressure wave alone, because I don't remember the exact numbers. Uh, it's only a few PSI on your chest is enough to end up killing you. Oh, wow. I didn't know that at all. When you think about it, your chest is a pretty large area. Yeah, I guess so. And we're really fragile. <laughs> right. You know, water's not very compressible, so... You get a shockwave that compresses the front of your chest before your back, and it's and not there, pretty inside. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, terrible. Um, so definitely that did a lot of damage, whatever it was. But so there's still debate about what it was, like you just intimated. <laughs> um, yeah, why? Why are we still debating this? Well, there's no crater. So... That's interesting, and one of the leading geophysical hypotheses is that this was a massive amount of gas from a gas seep that was trapped under an inversion. Okay. And mm. then it found an ignition source and exploded. That would make sense. It would make sense. This theory does not have a lot of backing, mm -hmm. and I think as we go through the rest of the evidence, you'll see why. Uh but that is a theory that's out there. Yeah. And I mean, it makes sense in the tundra, you could, you know, overturn that amount of gas all at once or something like that. But then, you know, comet or meteorite impact is probably the most likely. And things we've seen besides the lack of the crater are similar to that. But we'll get into that. So what's, when did we find out about this? Pretty soon after it happened, right? And then they sent people out to say, what was this? Yeah, but they didn't send people out for about a decade. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it takes a long time for word to travel around the world. So I, I would be curious of, in 1908, how long it took for communication to get from the tundra to civilization. Right, exactly, because it's not like there were, well, actually, I don't know, were there even railroads through there? But that's a huge Eastern Siberia is a huge landmass, so I guess it's not too surprising that it took a long time. Well, and if you look on Google Earth and pick about the most remote place, the place that is furthest from every other place, that's, that is where this happened. <laughs> that's where it happened. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it would, yeah, it's it's pretty um, far out there. So word got back. People said, "Oh, well, that's interesting." And then about a decade later, there was some question of could we mine this for natural resources? Could we get metals and minerals from this? That's the only thing that ever drives humans to do anything, isn't it? Yeah. So <laughs> uh, people went out on an expedition that was funded by the government. I believe that they probably thought they were going to walk out into the wilderness and find a big crater. Yeah. And at the bottom, there was going to be this, you know, giant glowing ball of valuable metal <laughs> uh, the that didn't happen but if you go and read the accounts of their expedition it's really interesting uh because they had to get natives uh to take them out to close to the site and then they got scared of one of the legends that was there and so the natives ran away and they had to find other guides and it was oh, an, it was an wow. ordeal wow okay yeah that makes sense and i mean surely Surely people would be really scared of this fireball that came through the sky, right, and flattened all these trees. That makes a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah, and 
I mean, there were even some eyewitness accounts that talked about, you know, they saw the fireball and then there was an intense heat, like their shirt was on fire. And then there was a boom and they were knocked to the ground by the boom. And to, uh, to not kill them, they still had to be pretty far away from that, too. Yeah. So, yeah, that's impressive. And so there was a lot of people that saw it, a lot of people that didn't know what it was. And unfortunately, the timeline and duration of these events varies widely between the eyewitness accounts. Right. Yeah. As, as it does today, but it's made simpler with video. <laughs> Right. So, you know, did the boom, was it just a short bang or did it last for 20 seconds? And Was it a streak uh, of fire or was it all in one spot? Because then you could maybe start to say, was it gas or was it something that came through the sky? Right. Yeah. Um, but so they didn't find this crater, but what they did find was all these trees that were flattened. And I said, I likened it to a downburst because they were flattened in this radial pattern outward, right? Yeah. So they were flattened in a radial pattern, except for right under where the explosion <laughs> happened, where they were still standing, but everything was pushed down. They were totally stripped of everything. I love it. This is so, such a fantastic geometric exercise. Right. <laughs> like, that's exactly what you would expect, right? Yeah, and they did not know it at the time, because we're talking, you know, 1920 range now, maybe mm -hmm. in the early 30s, uh, that later on, this exact same pattern would be seen when we tested nuclear weapons in air blasts, and even in earlier in World War II when we tested conventional bombs, with air blasts, very large bombs, you would see this pattern of straight down and then radial devastation. And so this is different because a lot of nuclear weapon tests also are used to liken the same processes for impact craters. And so what you just said, John, air bursts, that is something that's different than a big meteorite or any kind of bolide hitting the ground and then excavating the soil and the rock and everything else or water if it hits in the water and so this explodes in the air and basically you're excavating the air from around there causing the damage on the ground that's not crater like but is you know just like if you had like they call it a burst of air that comes rushing downward from this so where that thing explodes makes a big difference in the evidence that's left behind yes and it's neat because, you know, there are reports of heat. So you get some heat from friction as this thing is cruising through the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. You also get uh, heat from compression of air ahead of the fragments. Yeah, this creeps me out. <laughs> and so that's how you get this pretty much instant incineration in front of the shockwave and fragments. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is uh, this goes back to that that paper that we should just read is a fun paper that talks about the meteor crater in Arizona and what the shock waves do to the animals that are there because this that's a really young one fifty thousand years and yeah it's amazing just what the shock wave and how far out that can kill things yeah and the the extreme example the most extreme example I know of actually of this compression warming the air is in some of the nuclear submarine accidents that have happened in the last 40 years or so, mm -hmm. uh, where they went below crush depth and they imploded. 
Right. The folks inside did not die from crushing or drowning. They were incinerated That's before the water ever got in there because of the adiabatic compression and heating of the air. Unreal. So just like a bicycle pump, when you compress it like that, you're going to add all that heat. That's very interesting. Um, and that's a small tank underwater, yeah. not a, <laughs> yeah. you know, hundreds and hundreds of feet in diameter bolide coming in over Mach 1. Right. So if this thing explodes in the air and it is a bolide, you would... And we say bolide, I don't know if we've talked about that before or whatever. Uh, bolide is the word you say for something flying through the air and you don't know what it is. It could be a comet, it could be a meteorite. So to get rid of that argument, we just say bolide. Um, but whatever it is, it's going to explode and we've got this radial pattern on the ground, but there's also a lot of small lakes in the region too, right? And these debris have to go somewhere. So are those craters that have just filled with water? Yeah, I don't know. And nobody does. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So Uh. they drained one of these lakes in the twenties, uh, it was called Suslov Crater. And that sort of got a hole shot in it because they found an old tree stump in the bottom of the lake. Oh, that's too bad. (laughs) And then there was another one that they did some coring and they said, oh, yep, yep, this is it. This this was only 100 years old. And uh, at the time they did the core, that would have been about right. And they said, yep, this is a debris, uh, a debris impact. And then another paper came out a few years later and said, no, you're all wrong. You're off by 200% on the age. (laughs) We don't know. (laughs) Okay, so potential. Um, Something else that would happen, and this was definitely happened in the one that was in Oklahoma, is that, you know, you're going to see this in seismicity, right? This is going to create some earth shaking. Yeah, so this was recorded widely uh, with roughly... I mean, so we have to kind of back estimate what the magnitude would be, right? There was no, not even a Richter scale at this right. point. Mm-hmm. Uh, roughly a magnitude five is as close as we can tell. I mean, that's pretty good. Yeah. So think about one of the larger earthquakes in Oklahoma and all mm-hmm. the shaking that did to your house. That's what this would have done uh, if you had been close enough that you got the full impact of it. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> <laughs> So that's, I mean, that's significant, and we, we do see that a lot. Uh, we'll talk about that a little bit at the end uh, um, as well. But that's one way to know and sort of locate these events, except the location problem's weird because the source is in the air. Right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so I guess be glad it was in the air if it was a bolide, because if it was a five and it exploded in the air, it's going to be a lot bigger if it hit the ground full force. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so you've got these... Not delucent clouds? Is that how that goes? Yeah. And <laughs> th- this is really cool. So after the event, uh, people reported shimmering skies in the night. Okay. Which sounds like a bunch of hocus pocus. Yes, literally. <laughs> right. But as it turns out, there's this phenomena that there is still gobs of debate in the meteorological literature about. Uh-huh. Uh, called noctilucent clouds. And believe it or not, they're actually the highest known clouds forming between 76 and 85 kilometers. That's 47 to 53 miles in Yankee units. That uh, up is in the outrageous. <laughs> that's outrageous. Yeah. <laughs> uh, these are really beautiful, though. Um, 
you know, you see them a lot. I'm really sad because I really have always said this nocticulant in my head, and that makes me sad that it's not nocticulant. (laughs) Yeah, but it makes sense. Night, shimmering, noctilucent. Exactly. Uh, Yeah, that makes a lot more sense. So we think these might be high altitude or dust, and in the deep twilight hours, they are illuminated, but it looks like night to you. So cool. So that's what we think is going on here. And they, we have actually formed these as humans. Okay. All right. So through what processes? Space shuttle re-entry. Ah, okay. So that makes sense. W- one of the uh, re-entries of the space shuttle Endeavor made these beautiful streaks of noctilucent clouds. That. Is awesome. I mean, you're putting something really high up in the atmosphere. Makes total sense that those little things act as cloud condensation nuclei and then get reflected. Well, and I mean, you think about it, the process of an asteroid entering the atmosphere and the space shuttle entering the atmosphere is the same, except for the space shuttle has heat tiling and people. Right. Yes. Mm-hmm. Hey, you don't know. Uh, Bolides might have people too. You don't know. so how far away could people see these noctilucent clouds then i i didn't find a lot of detail on that okay but i mean that had to be you you should be able to see them if that was what it was from a bolide you should be able to see those pretty far away because you know 50 miles up that's pretty high yeah i mean you're definitely talking well over the horizon right yeah Uh, yeah so there was that and then what I think is the most compelling data against the gas hypothesis is that in the mid-60s, there were some experiments that the Soviets performed where they had a, <laughs> they made a model forest or model forests, which were matches. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and then they had a system of wires that they would change the direction and angle of. And slide little packets of explosive down the wires. And when they got to the end of the wire over the matchstick force, they exploded. Oh, man. I love experimentalists. This is amazing. (laughs) And so they were able to produce the same sort of butterfly-shaped pattern uh, that we saw. And they decided that from their experimentation, the object had to have approached at an angle of about 30 degrees uh, vertical from the ground. So very low angle and at a bearing of about 115 degrees from north. Okay. Well, that low angle thing is what I would first think of when there's a lack of a crater, right? And so right. that that's great that we have some experimental data that matches that. Yeah, so that all lines up. And <laughs> this is definitely a don't do it at home, you know, don't do this yourself experiment, but it sounds quite fun. Man, I... Yeah, I don't think I'm going to say that. Don't do it at home. (laughs) This is great. (laughs) That's super great. I think this needs to be remade for the YouTube era. That's all I'm saying. Right. Yep. (laughs) We'll get that up and get our YouTube channel going, John. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so that seems... There's a lot lot of evidence that this is likely bolide. But just like I said earlier, when you say bolide, what is it? Is it a meteor? Is it a comet? What's going on? So the literature is still out. <laughs> oh, I love it. This is great. <laughs> so and- we are 110 years 
from when this occurred, <laughs> and we're still arguing. There are over a thousand published papers arguing over this topic. Oh my gosh. See, this is what I love about science. I think a lot of people find this frustrating about science, but I think it's great, and I find it comforting that it's not exact. There's a lot of things without answers. Right. Yeah. So <laughs> the, uh, some of the early suggestions of this go back to 1930, where FJW Whipple, who I believe was a British geologist, uh, said that this was a comet because there was no impactor that survived, and it also explained the noctilucent clouds ah. very nicely because you have something that's ice that's disintegrating on its way down, leaving these nice trails. Okay. Right. That makes sense. I mean, but we should be able to figure out if there was a comet around at that time, right? Yeah. So then we skip a bit, about 50 years or a little less. Uh, Acad academics, man. <laughs> and uh, Lubor Kresak thought that this might be part of comet, and I know I'm not going to get this right, <laughs> Inki. Okay. Yeah, that's what I would have said. <laughs> I did not know anything about this comet, but apparently it's with, it stays within the orbit of Jupiter and has a revisit period of every three years. Wow, three years. Okay. Uh, it also is what's responsible for the Beta Taurids meteor shower in June. How come I've never heard of this? Interesting. Um, and so that one would have been the right trajectory, too, because, I mean, we can model these things, so pieces that are coming off of that would have come in at this kind of low angle. It would have come at the low angle and about the right bearing, because as it turns out, remember, this was June 30th, which was the peak of the meteor shower. Oh, beautiful. Beautiful. I, so there's thousands of things in the literature who fought against this idea. <laughs> yeah. So in 1983, Zednik Shikanya mm -hmm. said that if this was a comet at such a shallow trajectory, it would have disintegrated very high in the atmosphere and never made it so low to be able to do this much damage. You know, I wonder about this now, though, because now that we've actually landed a spacecraft on a comet and found it was a lot more rocky than we thought it was, what's the validity of that that argument now, you know? Yeah, I, I'm not sure, because we generally think of comets as big ice balls with some stuff in them, but right. that wasn't what we found with Rosetta. Right, yeah, exactly. It was a big rock ball <laughs> with some ice on it. So, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally different. So that... Um, that's interesting. I wonder if there's any revisitation of this. But, okay, so there's other stuff that we can look at, right? And so in the 90s, Longo et al. Uh, looked at the resin in the trees that were down and found that there were metals that were common in asteroids, but not in comets. Yeah, so that seems like a pretty conclusive piece of evidence, right? You would think so. <laughs> and then in 2001, Foschini et al. did some orbital modeling and came up with a probability of 83% that this came from the asteroid belt. Done. Nail in the coffin. <laughs> and no. then in 2008, Rodinko <laughs> came out with a full 3D model that suggested that this was a comet and explained all of the damage. Uh. <laughs> and then we had further revisiting of that it had to be a comet because of the noctilucent clouds, right? And by Kelly et al. in 2009. Yep, so that was some upper atmosphere modeling work. Okay, there you go. And so then in 2010, Alexov did this GPR study beneath that crater we were talking about earlier, the Suslov crater, and said that there was something there. 
and thought it was shattered ice, but it was that old stump, right? Well, we don't know that it was the old stump uh, because this was drained in the 20s. I don't know if it was still drained when they did this work or not. Mm-hmm. Um, but. But, yeah, the old stump kind of kills it for me because that thing had been there for probably, you know, decades to uh, centuries before the before, impact. Before, yeah, happened. exactly. Okay. Um, and then... <laughs> And uh, then <laughs> in that same area, three years later in 2013, a team analyzed some fragments and decided that they were an iron meteorite. They were chondrite. Oh man. I I really think that this, you know, when we the Rosetta mission really could be the nail in the coffin for this. Yeah, I'm and getting, so I'm going with I, Comet. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> I'm wondering if this was a rocky cord aggregate so it did have ice and frozen gases and volatiles on the surface that burned off in the upper atmosphere gave us these noctilucent clouds and then as it came in also remember there's still going to be ice and volatiles which when you heat them up can pressurize and cause detonation Mm -hmm. and then that that's my best guess here yeah and you throw your metals everywhere so it's not surprising that you're finding these metal fragments or you know traces in stuff all around there that seems to answer the question so it's a rocky gourd comet that's giving us mixed signals maybe exactly yep excellent that's very interesting and there have been lots of studies trying to model you know what the energy released in this was Mm -hmm. the earlier studies we think way overestimated (laughs) Okay, yeah, I saw something just when I was reading about it, several hundred atomic bombs. Well, no, so the the highest estimate I saw was 15 megatons, which would be about 1,000 Hiroshima oh. atomic bombs. Oh, oh, man, I didn't read that one. That's crazy. <laughs> uh, the Our best guess now is this is 3 to 5 megatons, so okay, that so is 300 that to 400 is. Hiroshimas. Okay, so that wasn't crazy. Man, I read that and thought that seemed like an awful lot, but... Well, but you compare it to... The Hiroshima bomb itself was actually very small. Yeah. Um, if you compare it to some of the big detonations, thermonuclear weapons that we did and the Soviets did, uh, it's tiny. It's a yeah. fraction. Yeah, that's true. Even though it, you know, really flattened a lot of trees. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And so what else do we know about it? That it was definitely an airburst, right? We know it was an airburst, and we think it was 5 to 10 kilometers, so 3 to 6 miles above the ground. So it was close. I mean, traversing 3 to 6 miles at the speed this was coming in is milliseconds. (laughs) Yeah, right, exactly. And so the estimate, we got a pretty good estimate of the size of this too, right? Big. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it is. Um, and so I'm, I'm guessing this is, you know, the size of it before explosion, but we're talking 60 to 190 meters across, so almost 620 feet across. That's a that's a honking bowline. Yeah, so, you know, one to several football fields. Yeah. And, I mean, that would make – that even further goes towards this whole comment thing because one to several football fields of rock you would think you'd find some pieces of that somewhere you would think there would be some big ones yeah yeah so, so. Mm-hmm. and yeah. the other interesting thing when i was doing some research on this is that there are a lot of high altitude de- detonations so 
something like this is probably a 300-year event. Ooh. Um, something smaller than this, though, All the is time? regular. Yes, but they, they explode very high in the atmosphere. We never know about them, but we can see them on intelligent satellites and in infrasound. Nice. Okay, cool. That makes sense. And sometimes you can even see them on Nexrad weather radar. Oh, yay. Uh, yeah, I read some of those websites, too, that talk about what those radar uh, signals are, are all about. Yeah, so Fry and Fry uh, is a team that does a lot of this work. Uh, you're a little bit limited by the Nexrad system cuts off. They have an upper altitude where they just throw things out after that. It's not relevant for what they're trying to do with a weather radar. So you don't see everything. You just see things that get very low in the atmosphere. Uh, but occasionally you do see trails. So you get this low reflectivity uh, streak. And you also see, uh, you know, high, high spectrum width and that kind of thing in there. Right. Okay. Um, and we know these things happen, right? There's a lot lately that have gone on. I mean, I say a lot lately, but the event, you know, I say near the same place. It wasn't near the same place, but it was in Russia, you know, Chablinsk in 2013. Yeah. And that's a cool one. I, I wrote a couple of blog posts about it that I'll link in one looking at infrasound and one looking at multiple seismic stations and getting the surface wave speed of the ground over where it burst. Ooh, that's cool. Uh, by using it as a seismic source. It, so it was my active source for my survey. Awesome. Uh, <laughs> there's also a really neat book that I mentioned in there that a lot of libraries have it or can get it. It's called Effects of Nuclear Weapons. <laughs> and it has, it, it tells you how to model things like this. So this is an airburst so high, we're going to model a pressure front, we're maximized, minimized. Uh, it's an interesting book to look at. But if you go back even further, in 1930, there was another unexplained explosion that, though not as large, was probably a bolide as well. But we know even less about it. Uh, was that in the same, was that in Russia too, or? Uh, no, no, I don't remember exactly where that one was. Okay, well, and then we've got the 2018 uh, Oklahoma one. <laughs> Right, the little bitty one. <laughs> exactly. He's so cute. <laughs> uh, and, you know, the, the 2013 event, it did injure a lot of people, but it was because sound travels so much slower. They saw the streak. Everybody ran to their office windows to see what it was, and then the shockwave blew the windows out in their face. Yes, that's unbelievable. Like the, uh, the estimates on the amount of glass that was shattered in that event, it's just crazy. Yeah, and... If you want to try to detect entries at home yourself, you can do this. I've done this. It's a lot of fun. Uh, <laughs> so you get, you, a, you get an FM radio. Uh, if you want to do some overkill, you know, you can put up a, a discone antenna or something. Okay. And you tune to a station that is just out of range. Okay. So you get pretty much straight static. Mm-hmm. And when you go out to watch a meteor shower take a radio with you and do this. Now, when there's an entry, all of that hot ionized gas behind it creates a surface that's reflective to radio waves. Okay. And so the FM station is transmitting 
it goes up, it'll end up bouncing off the tail if the geometry is right, and you'll get a short half second or one second burst of the radio station relatively clearly from your radio. Oh, that's awesome. And then that cools down and stops reflecting the signal. But yeah, so you can watch that and you'll occasionally hear just these short, loud bursts of the radio stations just out of range. And those are reflections off of entries that just happened. That's great. Oh, how cool. I haven't done that, but I'm definitely going to. Yeah, it's a fun little experiment. And there's even some software out there that can try to uh, monitor it continuously and count events and that kind of thing. Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah. Great. Well, so we solved it. I think that we should win some kind of prize for that. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe we should write this up. (laughs) We should, you know, we could write it up in the style of everybody's favorite segment of the show. (laughs) Fun Paper Friday. Yay. Man, that was a great segue. (laughs) Yeah, so this, this comes from uh listeners to twitter to handle verse visa okay <laughs> and it's called yolo v3 an incremental improvement by redman and Ferhadi. uh i don't even know what this is but i do know that this was a ridiculously hilarious uh paper and website to read <laughs> yeah so the paper was on the archive if okay. you're looking for it and YOLO is you only look once. It's a machine learning vision algorithm. <laughs> so know. this is how you identify things like this is a horse, this is a dog, this is a computer. Mm-hmm. What are these used for? So I think the biggest application that I would know for something like this would be a self-driving car. Okay. Yeah, that would make sense. Or in factories where you have robots that, you know, things are coming off an assembly line uh, well, that's that's even simpler, though. You don't have to identify objects in that case. You're just identifying orientation. N- yeah, or not objects, right? Um, right. Well, I would hope that in the case of the self-driving car, it never has to identify a camel because that consistently said dog. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> in the uh, three-minute video, which is actually kind of cool to watch. It thinks lots of things are dogs. <laughs> Right. <laughs> uh, but the point of this one is, um, you know, it's pretty good, right? Yeah. So the idea is that the authors made some improvements to it, and they had another manuscript that was uh, <laughs> camera ready, which is a phrase that very few people are going to remember. <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. So in days of your of publishing... When uh-huh. you would get all of your paper stuff drafted, so your figures, you would you would have your data and you would draw it, what kind of chart you want, and you would take it to a drafts person, and they would make your plot and photograph it, and you would send that off with multiple copies of the paper to submit right. it. And then <laughs> when the journal was ready to publish it, it was sort of this cut and paste, but without computers kind of thing. Yes. Yeah. So I love it. all of the items would get arranged on the page. And then it was camera ready, and you would get what were called galley proofs. You proofed them, and then they literally took pictures of the pages, and that's what got published. And there you go. Yep. <laughs> so they had they had a manuscript that was camera ready, and uh, uh, it needed something to cite to say we're using the version three of this algorithm that has all of these improvements. And they didn't have a paper out, so they put this thing on archive. 
<laughs> which consistently with many fun papers, it usurps my favorite opening line, which in this paper is sometimes you just kind of phone it in for a year, you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> Spent a lot of time on Twitter, played with Gans a little. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Didn't do a whole lot of research, but we needed this thing. So <laughs> it's so fantastic. <laughs> and then I love it. it says so get ready for a tech report the great thing about tech reports is that they don't need intros y'all know why we're here <laughs> <laughs> this is so beautiful <laughs> and so then they go into you know literally the second you know one is the intro number two says the deal <laughs> right <laughs> <laughs> so here's the deal we mostly took good ideas from other people <laughs> right <laughs> Oh, it's beautiful. This is overly honest methods. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Except it's actually a real thing. Oh, it's beautiful. <laughs> yeah. So then they go into some bounding box improvements, feature extractors, prediction, prediction across different scales. They compare it to some things. Uh, then we get to section three, which in most papers will be called methods. In this paper, it's called how we do. <laughs> love it and it just says yolo v3 is pretty good exclamation point (laughs) man i'm just gonna write all my papers like that (laughs) it's really great and then in the same spirit section four things we tried that didn't work which in most papers would be called future work i think that this should be required in all papers and it should just be that exact thing right there things we tried that didn't work but the intro is great. We tried a lot of stuff while working on Yo- YOLO V3. A lot of it didn't work. Here's the stuff we can remember. <laughs> That's beautiful. This is, I mean, so we're laughing at this, but this is actually super important because this stuff never gets reported. Well, and, and this so, is how all science actually gets done. Exactly. So this is how science gets done, and this stuff never gets reported. And I feel like there's a lot of science that just gets... You know, it's the same people, or not the same people, it's the same mistake being made over and over again because that's not a publishable thing, you know? Yeah. The Journal of Null Results needs to exist. So then we get to table three, which is a bunch of scores for a bunch of different algorithms. Uh, The caption is, seriously, I'm stealing all these tables from reference seven. (laughs) They take so long with four O's to make from scratch. Okay, YOLO 3 is doing all right. (laughs) Oh, man, I love it, too. Uh, The end of this figure caption is, can you cite your own paper? Guess who's going to try? This guy. (laughs) Right. (laughs) With an arrow pointing to his citation. (laughs) Yeah, and so that's on figure three. And figure three as well is a (laughs) screenshot of a figure from another paper. And then they plot their results on it, which are off axes. They're completely off the plot, over the label to the left. And he says, again, adapted from seven. This is displaying blah, blah, blah. You can tell yellow V3 is very good because it's very high and far to the left. I love and this. This is clearly annotated in, you know, PowerPoint or something. Oh, my gosh. I love this so much. But, you know... If the other papers had all of the data in an easily accessible format, you wouldn't have had to do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but he probably God, still so would have. Uh, yeah, that is absolutely true. Um, so instead of conclusions, it's what this all means. 
which you know it's even better yeah this this is i know nothing about this other than the very 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 basics of the field and this paper is mostly understandable yes yeah exactly it's fantastic and i mean he says in the third paragraph there uh you know maybe a better question is what are we going to do with these detectors now that we have them all right i mean it's kind of cool yeah, and he says, a lot of people doing this research are at Google and Facebook. I guess at least we know the technology is in good hands and definitely won't be used to harvest your personal information to sell it. Wait, you're saying that's what it will be used for? Which is very pertinent now in the it sure is. light of a Facebook data breach. Yep, this week, exactly. Uh, I mean, he follows it. You just have to keep going. He follows it up. Well, the other people heavily funding vision research or the military, and they've never done anything horrible. Right. <laughs> Oh, this is super great. Um, but he goes on to say, I have a lot of hope that most of the people using computer vision are just doing happy good stuff with it, like counting the number of zebras in the national park or tracking their cat as it wanders around their house. And there are references for both of those. And there are. Oh, great. It's beautiful. Uh, and finally, he says, in closing, do not at me. I finally quit Twitter. <laughs> oh, gosh, that's great. Yeah, this was a fantastic find. Um, and so you've also linked in their website, which has a three-minute video just showing version three at work. And like I said, everything's a dog, and I think it's really funny. <laughs> yep, and there's some great memes on the site as you scroll down. It yes. looks like this would not be terrible to uh, get up and running. Um, I assumed not since... No, I didn't have any idea, but I figured since he put all that out there, it didn't look like it was the worst thing. Yeah. So <laughs> thanks for sending that fun paper in. That was quite enjoyable and gave us a great laugh. Oh, absolutely. Uh, so if you have a fun paper or anything else that you would like us to discuss on the show or your own theory about what the 1908 bolide really was... <laughs> We would love to hear it. Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? Uh, please send those to us. Show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. I'm sure you can get some lively discussion going on in the Slack chat room. Uh, it's on the Software Underground Don't Panic channel. Uh, we are on Twitter. We didn't quit it yet. At Don't Panic Geo. I'm at Shannon Doolin. John is at Geo underscore Lehman. And if you are really enjoying our show and have some money to burn, you can always contribute to us at our Patreon. So patreon.com slash don't panic geo and until next week remember don't panic it's not an exact science any opinions findings conclusions or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies